0: Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with Alice Mitchell. Alice Mitchell is a junior professor in the Institute for African Studies at the University of Cologne in Germany. She holds a bachelor's degree in German and Linguistics from the University of Oxford and an MA in Language Documentation and Description from SOAS. She also holds a PhD in Linguistics from the University at Buffalo. Prior to starting her current position in Cologne, Alice spent one year as a Humboldt Fellow in the African Studies Department at the University of Hamburg. She also spent three years as a postdoc in the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at the University of Bristol. Her research focuses on the Datoga language of Tanzania, where she has been conducting fieldwork since 2012. In this episode with Alice, we discuss her work in Tanzania. And if you're interested in the Datoga, you can check out episode 16 with Richard Griscom. He also works with another community of, of the Datoga. And I really enjoyed this episode. Alice works in pragmatics, and one of the things she is researching is the avoidance register in Datoga, which is something I find so interesting. Alice's research is a little bit different from other episodes that we've aired in the fact that she works with speakers of Datoga who are children – So she talked about how working with kids is different from working with adults, and I found her work really fascinating, and I'm excited to share it with you. So thank you, Alice, for making time to come on Field Notes. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you're welcome. So to start, can you take us through your fieldwork biography?
1: Yeah, so I think my very first fieldwork was when I was doing my Master's in Language Documentation and Description at SOAS. And uh, Dr. Julia Salabank took a couple of us on the Master's with her to to Guernsey, where she does fieldwork. And we had our, our first experience doing um, fieldwork on language revitalization and endangered languages. So that was my sort of first ever taste of fieldwork. And then for my master's thesis, I was working on preschools in minority languages in Europe and looking at the connections between the preschools and to what extent they influence each other. So I interviewed a couple of people in different minority languages, well, not in the <laughs> in the language, but um, uh, about these different schemes. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so that was my first foray. And then my first proper fieldwork was that was in situ, right? Not during a field methods course was then for my PhD uh, in Tanzania with the speakers. And that's the community that I've worked with since since then, since 2012. I find the language and the people so fascinating that I've not yet been tempted to do field work anywhere else. So I'm sure I will at some point.
0: Yeah, I, I totally relate to that. At this point, I can't really imagine working with any other communities. Um, mm-hmm. I feel very like very connected to yeah. the Amami community so i was just gonna
1: say the more you, that you learn about a language often for me at least the more and more things you start to find interesting about it's it. it's
0: true yeah I, I feel like my list of things that i want to research in the future is just getting longer and longer and i don't know if i'll be able to ever move on to or maybe i'll <laughs> just branch out a bit and yeah
1: and continue continue with you know with more than one project yeah
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. But I was just wondering, how did you become interested in Tanzania or with the Datoga speakers?
1: That's a that's a good question. Um, so I think I, I became quite interested in, in Africa in general while I was at SOAS, because obviously, there are a lot of researchers there working on African languages. And I was becoming more and more interested in, in linguistic diversity. And then when I started my PhD, actually I read a book by Tucker Childs, An Introduction to African Languages. And uh, he had this one section on, I think it was this, the section on sociolinguistics, and he talked about these avoidance registers that you find in some Nguni languages. And I just found this so fascinating. Yeah, then um, I, <laughs> with the help of uh, my... PhD advisor, Jeff Good. um, I then kind of bombarded loads of Africanist linguists with an email saying, does anyone know of any fascinating kind of special register or special variety that hasn't been documented? Because I was particularly interested in these kind of sociolinguistic varieties. And actually I got a surprising number of positive responses back. But one email was sort of particularly grabbed my attention from Martin Maus at Leiden and he told me about the the avoidance register in Datoga, which nobody had really worked on at that point. He knew about it from working on a neighboring language. And there was an anthropologist who'd worked with Datoga people and he put me in touch with her. And she was incredibly generous with her her time and also her contacts with the community. And that's actually how I got in touch with my host family um, in Tanzania, who are still my host family. Uh, Yeah, so that's how, how it came about And uh, yeah, it was indeed an absolutely fascinating topic to pick.
0: I love stories like that where
1: everything just lines up at the right time. Yeah. And I would say, you know, people were very generous and I know that's not always the case, I think. I mean, I wondered, I had the impression that perhaps linguists who work in Africa are you know, there's there's so much diversity there that we still know very little about. So people are very excited when students, you know, are interested.
0: Yeah, definitely. That was my experience as well. I didn't really know where to start. I just knew the language family I wanted to work with. So I emailed uh, Patrick Heinrich, who is a sociolinguist who works in the Ryukyus. And Uh, he's definitely one of the most well-known linguists and as i was emailing him i was thinking this guy is not going to email (laughs) me back there's no way he must get so many of these and right away he emailed me back and he was like oh this is fantastic let's skype and yeah that's wonderful but yeah it's so nice when senior scholars are generous like that the it's really there's enough to do right we need more linguists (laughs) yeah yes absolutely yeah (laughs) Um, so can you describe a bit more about like the Datoga language and the community that you work with? And it's okay to be very specific yeah. because we had Richard and uh, <laughs> Andrew on as well, who also work with the Datoga, uh the different communities, I think, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Totoga is a, a dialect cluster that belongs to the Southern Nilotic language family. And, uh, the dialects are more or less mutually intelligible. I mean, they're not actually all very well documented. So, you know, there's ongoing research into that. I work mostly with the Gisam, Janga, and Barabai dialects. Um And the other thing about Datoga, so it's the, the size of the speaker population is estimated about 150,000 speakers. And there's not like one community that, you know, all live together because they're semi-nomadic cattle herders they're they're spread out all over the country um, so I've been focused I've been working in sort of based in a small town in Manyara region in northern Tanzania and then visiting neighboring villages so it's a little bit different from from the variety that Richard's working on
0: are they are they uh, villages in the sense of what we think of as a village, like very static, or do they go off and?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So, so the villages closer to the kind of main town, which is called Heidum, are fairly villagey in the sense that you know you have a, a a center with maybe a school and a church and some shops, and then the houses, the compounds, aren't too far away from each other. And there's a lot of transportation between the the town and and the village. One of the the village I've spent the most time in, yeah, is really not what we'd think of as a village. It's um it's sort of for administrative purposes, it's called a village, but it's huge and compounds are you know maybe half a mile to a mile away from each other. There is a village center, but really it's it's mostly just bush with with compounds dotted around. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's where I've done the majority of my more ethnographically oriented research. But I've worked with speakers in several different villages. And then also, depending on the kind of work that I'm doing, so if I'm doing more sort of elicitation based work, then, um, you know, I kind of have people come to me a bit in, in the town. So so I've met quite a variety of people from, from different places. And I wouldn't really, I mean, the I guess the, the community that I work with in a way, they're, they're, they're families, they're like extended households.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. Can you talk a bit about your main research interest? So you mentioned um, avoidance registers. Like, can you talk a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so so I'm interested in, well, lots of different things like we all are, but um, particularly um, the ways in which we use language to negotiate our social relationships and the, the diversity in the ways that different communities around the world do that so you know what's avoidance is, is all about interpersonal relationships and showing respect and that kind of thing so so that's my main interest and I'm also particularly interested in the kind of nuts and bolts of everyday conversation and, and social interaction so yeah topics in pragmatics, linguistic anthropology, interactional, sociolinguistics, those kinds of areas.
0: Can you give an example of like a a short example of how people might use name avoidance or something like that, just so you
1: understand it? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So if if people aren't familiar with these kinds of elaborate avoidance registers, I can give an example, a sort of fake example from English. So yeah, among sort of traditional toga women, and, and this also happens in other communities in Africa, it's taboo to say the name of your father-in-law and also lots and lots of other in-law relations, as well as words that sound like those names. So let's say your father-in-law is called Tom, then you can never say the word, the, the name Tom, like even if your brother was called Tom, that would now be taboo. And you're also going to avoid words that sound similar like tomorrow or tomato or tomboy. So In order to get around all of these taboos, women have developed a conventionalized avoidance vocabulary with, you know, multiple words actually for anything that they might need to avoid. You know, so the Datoga language is, is huge because every, you know, every single word has like at least three alternative lexical items as well for women that might need to avoid it. So that's roughly how it works and because women are avoiding not just father-in-law although he is kind of the the key target of avoidance also anyone who falls under the category of father-in-law so all his brothers and cousins also mother-in-law all of her sisters and going back multiple generations so it's a very extensive set of words that women avoid and uh, it really has quite an impact or can have quite an impact on on women's everyday speech patterns
0: yeah that's so interesting (laughs) wow So next, can you give some details about your current project, uh, Verikin?
1: Yes. So this was a project I've been working on for the last three years at the University of Bristol. Um, So this is a a very large ERC-funded project headed by Professor Fiona Jordan at Bristol, and it's looking at cross-cultural diversity in kinship systems. And there's several different sub-projects. One of them is looking at how... Children acquire concepts relating to kinship, so how kids figure out what for well, for one thing, what kinship terms mean, because we find so much diversity in in how we classify kin. Uh, so that's the part of the project that I've been working on. Um, and although my postdocs now finished, I've moved on. I'm still it's still very much current project. Yeah, so so I'm looking at how Dotoga-speaking children. Start to use kinship terms and how they develop concepts of kinship through through language use. So it's a kind of language socialization project with quite a big ethnographic component, and also recording lots of lots of children's everyday interactions, observing their activities, their play, and so on to to kind of try and figure out how they develop these quite complex concepts relating to who's family, who's not, how you classify different types of people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And that leads in nicely to the next question, which is, can you tell us more about how working with children is different from working with adult speakers? And how how have you sort of navigated those issues about consent? And yeah, tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so this this project, um, I did the fieldwork in 2017. And it was the first time I worked with children. So previously to that, of course, children are always around everywhere. But yeah, the focus was really on children's language now. The, one of the problems, of course, is that children are, are very immobile, so it's difficult to kind of get them sat in one place, which makes recording, recording language use a little bit more challenging. So, yeah, I had... I had two lapel microphones with little bum bags that that the children would sometimes wear. And this is a method some other researchers have used also in in Australia. There's a a project on language acquisition in Murrin Pata, and they get the kids to wear these little backpacks with the recording equipment in. For me, because I only had two, and there are a lot more children than that in, in a household, it wasn't really an ideal method of recording. So I also, I just often would follow the kids around as they went about their daily activities with, with a video camera and then the best times to record were really meal times and night times when everyone was gathered in one house. So yeah, there are definitely unique challenges recording children's language and also transcribing children's language, right, because uh, often it's quite unclear uh, what they're trying to say. And and they also have their own words for things, right? Yeah. So So that was quite interesting. As for consent, that's obviously a very tricky thing in general, I would say. I mean, the, the families, one of my main host families, you know, some of them, they wouldn't really understand the concept of a university. Research is a very foreign idea. But, you know, I try my best to explain what I'm doing. They they see the kind of whole process of putting the recordings on the computer. and um, And then so parents give consent for their children to participate. You know, that's kind of the standard way of doing it. And then getting the assent of children. Well, you know, the kids are really excited, <laughs> generally, about the recording equipment, and they love watching themselves back. And you just have to sort of, I don't know, of course, think about how to protect them. Um, but But also our research, in a way, is really celebrating these children's experiences. So other issues, of course, come with when I'm actually presenting the data, at the moment, so I've also recorded data with children in the UK and parents are more, you know, sensitive about having t- pictures and so on. Um, and then you can, you know, there are ways to pixelate uh, video images and so on. But yeah, that sort of answers your question.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do the, Would the kids ever get kind of bored? Of, like if you were trying to mm, get mm-hmm. certain kind of language data from them and would they just decide that they'd had enough and like walk off mm-hmm. for adult consultants? They have to have a lot of patience sometimes, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, and I always try to not kind of yeah. overstay my welcome, but it could take, you know, like 30 minutes or even an hour to record. And I can't really imagine kids wanting
1: to sit down for that long. Yeah. So, so that's a yeah really, really good point. I mean, I'm never doing any kind of well, I have done some questionnaires and stuff with kids, like asking them specific questions about kinship relations, but that's always really, really fast. It's like five minutes max. Kids just do whatever they want and I follow them around. So it's never really asking them to stay in one place. Um, it's just, you know, recording what they're doing. So, yeah. But actually with the lapel microphones, um, sometimes they would they would ask me to wear them and then they would come back after half an hour and they were like, yeah, we're done. You know, so yeah, they did. they did have a point where they were like okay I don't want to wear this weird thing anymore but that actually reminds me of something else that would be good to say about working with children so when I started recording spontaneous interaction you know one of the peop- one of the things people always ask about is oh aren't people really self-conscious and you know just pay attention to the camera and with adults I was just amazed at how you know maybe they'll comment on the camera now and again but they really just drown it out they just don't think about it they're too busy getting on with their lives With children, the camera never gets old, ever. So every time you turn it on, it's, you know, it's an exciting thing. My, so I use a a Zoom Q8 and it's got this little, little light on the front. And if, if the the noise is too loud, it flashes. And once the children discovered this, obviously they just loved it. So they were like clapping and making as much noise as possible to get this little light to, to flicker on and off, um, Oh, so funny. Yeah, so that that's definitely a challenge and and basically you just have to kind of wait for them to get absorbed by something else, but you you really have to be prepared for that in a way that with adults it's just, you know, they don't they don't behave that way obviously. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. What did you do when they started doing that? Did you just were you just like, "Well, this this session is garbage now." Yeah,
1: basically. Yeah, yeah. So, I think I tried a lot of different strategies, but the best one is just wait, wait it out. Yeah, be patient and and just you know if you have to get rid of the first fifteen minutes, it's fine. And maybe it'll come in useful one day. I mean, who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for <laughs> maybe sure. Maybe there's some kind of interesting research topic there. <laughs> How
0: funny! Let's talk about equipment. Can you talk about which? Well, you said you use the Q8, which is the one with the fisheye, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. With the. You know, the microphone that sat on the top. Right, yeah. yeah. And then other major equipment? Yeah, so the my 2017 field trip, I really relied on the, the, the QA a lot, and it made great recordings inside. Totoga houses are made of wattle and daub, and the, the sound quality was great. Um, it's quite small, which the houses aren't, aren't very big, so that was nice too. So I also use a uh, Sennheiser ME62, which I really like. Also for conversation, and I also had one of those little, Z- like a GoPro, but it was a Sony action cam that I used for a while, and that was really nice for small spaces. For elicitation, I have a Rode NTG2, which I think is quite a popular one, which is all right, although I don't like it as much as the Sennheiser. And then, as I was also mentioning, I I had some lapel microphones, some Audio Technica um, lapel microphones that were then they're wired so then you I got a tiny little I think they were TASCAM audio recorders that would fit in the bum bags for the children to wear. But ideally if I had a very large budget I would definitely go for wireless lapel microphones and then then the children would have a lot more flexibility, it'd be a lot more comfortable for them. And then I guess other equipment that's really important for my field work is solar panels. So I had a recommendation a voltaic systems one that was really pretty powerful. You could power a laptop off of it. And then these kind of more simple ones that just unfold. And then I became a mobile phone charging center for the whole village. Obviously, <laughs> but you know, that's a nice service that I was able to provide.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> they just rock up and plug into your...
1: Yeah, they, they would come and they'd kind of you You know you can't really just show up and ask for something in this culture, right? You kind of have to make you have to say hello and then <laughs> and then kind of somehow indicate that you want your phone charging but yeah, um, it was really it was quite funny the the constant demands <laughs> of the of the solar solar panel
0: that's nice though it's funny what people end up in the community end up wanting like Andrew Harvey made this great point about how you know, the community might not actually be interested in your recordings and your data, but they might rather learn how to edit photos on a laptop so that they can create a business in the future, learn how to make, you know, playlists.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. My um, main transcription assistant or my most recent main transcription assistant started learning to touch type on my computer. And that was, you know, that was kind of one of the most useful things I could offer her really. Yeah. So
0: sometimes it's unexpected. And then can we back up a little bit? And you were saying how uh, your current project is looking at kinship terms. Can you just say a little bit more about that, just so we have a better yeah. idea? Yeah, I can
1: say a bit more about that if you want. So, so exactly. So, kinship terms are the words we use to classify kin, mother, father, aunt and uncle. And if we compare to Toga in English, for example, mother is, like in many other African languages, your mother-sister is also your mother your father's wives are also your mother's, and for example, you you distinguish grandparents on um, the different sides of the family, unlike in English. So you have your your mother's mother and your father's mother you use different words for those. Also, if you look at the, the category cousin in English, which actually includes a lot of different types of relatives, for toga people you have a different term for every single type of, of cousin relation. So like first cousin, second cousin, third cousin. No, sorry. I mean, so your mother's, your mother's sister's children, right? So for Datoga, those are considered like your siblings, Actually, sorry, that is wrong. Your father's, your father's brothers' children are, your, are kind of considered your siblings. Whereas your, like your father's sisters' children, you would have different terms for your mother's brothers' children and your mother's mother's children. You would all have you would have different terms for all of those people. Yeah. So the so that's one of the the questions is then you know how do how do children learn to distinguish these types of people and apply the terms properly? And I'm also interested in things like so Datoga have a, a clan kinship system so when you're you're born you you're born into your father's clan and um clan is important for various different socio cultural political matters but obviously children have to figure out somehow what clan they belong to what clan even means right that that, that um they belong to their father's clan not their mother's clan and uh, it's interesting looking at how children kind of negotiate this um what I've found, well, one thing that's been quite challenging is that Detoga speakers actually don't use kin terms very much at all um, because they use names. That's their their person person reference preference. So children don't refer to their parents at, like using mum or dad and they don't call their uncles uncle. They use their, their names, not their birth names but a different kind of name that every Datoga person has. So looking at how children are acquiring these kin terms is actually a little bit tricky um, because, you know, actively they're not... Yeah, it's hard to catch them using them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And actually what's what's interesting is there's quite a lot of more, um, you know, idiomatic uses of kin terms. So for example, if you want to say... Like, I swear, in 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 Datoga, like, I swear for something to be true, you say, literally, it means it's like your mother's stomach. And so that's like, even the very young kids, that's the first time you'll hear them using the kin term mother in that context, right, rather than actually referring to someone. So looking at all, all these kinds of issues related to that, but I'm also interested in a more kind of anthropological sense of how certain relationships are maintained through linguistic practices. So... The mother-child relationship is a very intimate, close one for Totoga. So looking at like mother-child interactions, how those work linguistically is really, really interesting. And the other thing, so if, if the, um, the compound that I was doing most of my research in, so you've got children of the same age who belong to different generations because of the way, because you've got polygyny, you've got like a daughter-in-law of the main household head who's roughly the same age as his most junior wife, right? So then you've got like a four-year-old child who's actually technically the classificatory father of, of a child the same age. So the question is, you know, obviously they're all children, they, they interact like siblings or, you know, but at what age do they kind of realise that they stand in these different relationships to each other? And I remember one time there was... I guess this. I think they were both about six or seven. These two boys were fighting, and then the uh, this kind of head of the household just kind of made this comment like, "Oh, they wouldn't be fighting if they they knew that, or they, they were thinking of the fact that 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 child is actually the other one's father, right? Classification father." And I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. You know, it takes time for these relationships to become meaningful.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. This is the last question what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out and is thinking that they'd like to do some fieldwork in the Rift Valley? Do you have any hot tips?
1: (laughs) Well, I guess given that what we were both just saying earlier, um, get in touch with other researchers, you know, don't be afraid to do that. People like hearing from people who are interested in similar things. Some practical advice, I would say Make sure you take smart clothes with you to the field. This is something I didn't really think about when I first went, and you are very likely to get invited to a special events, special occasions. And even though you can get amazingly nice clothes made for you in Tanzania very easily, it's good to look smart. You know, don't have this idea that you're kind of going into the bush and you should just have your like safari gear on. I mean, people are really well dressed in Tanzania. And uh, yeah, that's something I was made a note of. And on future trips, then I made sure I had nice clothes. Um Another thing I would say is as much as you possibly can learn um, Swahili before you go. It, it's really for me, where I was doing my Ph.D., there were no Swahili courses available Um And I did manage to find a Swahili teacher who sort of became a tutor, but really I had to mostly teach myself. But I mean, it's just going to be so much of a help to you if you can speak Swahili already. So I would really invest time in that. And another thing, and this isn't true just of the Rift Valley, but of anywhere, when you actually start working on a language, I would you know, if I was kind of advising my past self, I would really make every effort to learn the language as well as to just study it, you know, so use every opportunity. I mean, even your first day, right? You've just, you've elicited some simple words. Well, you know, make flashcards, start learning them already. Um, Think about it both as, you know, not just a researcher, but also a learner. And I think that way fieldwork becomes so, so much more rewarding. And you know, of course, then you can interact with people in a very different way if you can speak the language. I actually had a recommendation for an article too.
0: Yeah, uh, Leslie Leslie Moore's
1: paper. Yeah, she's got a really great article about communicative competence in the field, uh, and and she gives some like very practical um, suggestions for learning languages. But you know, I think sometimes not all linguists, but sometimes linguists don't really think about actually learning the language right and I'm someone who you know how everyone gets really annoyed when people ask how many languages do you speak as a linguist I personally don't find that such a stupid question like as a linguist surely we like learning languages I know there are many different kinds of linguists uh, but for me that's that's not an annoying question actually I uh, (laughs) so I think it's really really important to to try and learn the language you're studying and then, um, yeah, I, I listened to some of your other um, episodes and I think people gave some really, really great advice. Um, so don't want to really repeat anything. I would, one thing I would say on a sort of, I don't know what you would say, like psychological level, is don't expect too much of yourself when you're first starting out in the field. You know, it's tough in lots of different ways and you're bound to kind of think, to think, oh, how someone else would be doing that, right, if they were in the field, just just try and not think like that and, and be, be kind to yourself. And, you know, so what if you really don't get much done in your first trip? Just try and soak up the experience and the, the, the relationships that you make are the most important thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really true. Oh, well, thank you, Alice. I think that's a great note to end on um so where can our listeners learn more about your work or find you online if they want to read more about what you're doing
1: so i have a a website at the university of cologne where i've just moved to and then i have a i think i have a google scholar profile that you can find my articles on and then i'm also always very happy to receive emails from people so perhaps you can put that there too my email address oh great thank you alice yeah, thank you, Martha. It's really nice to e-meet you. Have a nice, have a nice day. <laughs> Bye.
0: You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui-Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Eville Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lingfieldnotes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Thanks for listening.